pieces of unleavened bread that I think will be good to consider along with it. Uh, the subject matter just simply flows into that. So I think we will get some meat in due season as well as uh, a better understanding of Abraham and those around him since he is one that we are to look to. As we go through this, I think we'll see pretty clearly that Abraham is even a type of our Father in heaven, and that Isaac was a type of his son. Not perfect types by any means, because human beings are not like God. But some of the similarities in what Abraham and Isaac went through are very similar to what the Father and the Son did, and are very uh, important for us to grasp and to understand. Anyway, we finished up chapter 17 yesterday uh, with a token of circumcision being uh, laid upon Abraham and his family to set them apart from the rest of the world. Uh, we are here to be sanctified and set apart by the Word of God, by circumcision of the heart, that is, cutting out that deceitful nature of the heart that we have automatically as human beings and becoming clean and pure in heart, as Christ told us in the so-called Sermon on the Mount. So circumcision was merely a type of a spiritual thing to come. Circumcision of the heart is even mentioned in the Old Testament in terms of prophecies of the New Testament church. So it wasn't a new thing in as much as circumcision of the heart was not possible in the Old Testament in the same way that it is in the New with the Spirit of God there to help transform us from our carnal way of thinking and begin to work, walk in the Spirit. So circumcision has a very deep meaning, and that deep meaning carries over into the New Testament, because Romans 2.29 says that he is a Jew which is one inwardly. It is inside the heart and mind that God judges whether we are a true Israelite today or not. And Paul makes it very clear that we are one in Christ, we're neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, uh, race or gender matters not whatsoever. Whether we as individuals turn to God with our whole hearts in obedience to his every desire is what counts. I've said several times recently, and I think it bears uh, repeating even here in this context, that God does not judge us as couples. You can't lean on your husband or your wife and expect them to help you get into the kingdom of God when it comes time for the judgment. Now, we can help one another toward living the way we ought to and having the right attitudes. But when it comes down to time for judgment, we're not judged as couples. You won't go in because of your husband, and you won't go in because of your wife. It'll be because of the judgment God makes on your character, your mind, and your level of obedience to him. So circumcision is very, very important in the New Testament when you understand what kind of circumcision he's talking about. Cut out any part that doesn't look like God, any part of your character, your thinking, that doesn't reflect his thinking, and bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Now that takes quite a bit of circumcision. It takes a lot of cutting to cut all those things out of our minds. This was just a small token cut. We have bigger cuts to make. All right, let's go on to chapter 18 then. And the Eternal appeared to Abraham in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. Got in the shade a little bit, rested. I'm sure he'd been out working earlier and probably worked later in the day, but he took some time out during the heat of the day to uh, rest and do other things. Some of us out here in the desert have learned that it's nice to get in out of the heat in the middle of July and August for an hour or so and then 
get back out and work harder when the sun begins to wane a little bit. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him, and when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. You'll see quite a bit about the character of Abraham here. Uh, he was a very hospitable man, very concerned about visitors coming. Perhaps he recognized that they were important visitors, I don't know. But he ran to meet them and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, pass not away, I pray you, from your servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. So he was going to make sure they were taken care of. I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort you your hearts. <laughs> I guess he knew the way to a man's heart was through his stomach. I wonder if that's where that expression actually came from. <laughs> After that you shall, you shall pass on, for therefore are you come to your servant. And they said, so do, as you have said. He said, I recognize you're traveling, but you can pass on, but let me take care of you first so that you're comfortable when you go. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth. Uh, she didn't say, Well, I'm just not up to company today, honey. Uh, turn these guys away. He went in and asked her, and she had the same spirit and attitude that Abraham had had there. And Abraham ran into the herd. It was the heat of the day, and he ran and fetched a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man, and he hasted to dress it. So this, this meal was going to take some time, because he had to run out there, grab a calf, and then have it killed and, and butchered out and cut up and uh, prepared and cooked. I guess you don't have to age your beef, do you? He was serving Christ himself here and served it fresh. Sometimes... You do things in an emergency situation. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. There was a fad diet around some time back that said you're not supposed to eat milk and meat uh, together. The Bible explodes a lot of these strange ideas that people come up with. Here he had fresh beef, butter, milk, and bread in one meal. So if anybody tells you you're not supposed to eat this combination or that combination, a lot of times you can go to the Bible and find out, hey, that's okay. And they said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, behold... In the tent. She had been in there baking and preparing for them. Well, they had a message for him, and one of them was Christ himself. We'll see that a little later on. Although there were three of them there. Two were angels. Uh, so she's in the tent, and he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and lo, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door, which was behind him. Now, time of life here, uh, I looked up, and it's a little inconclusive, but it seems to be from the time of conception to birth or the nine months of gestation, uh, time of life, meaning from the time a baby is engendered until it's born, uh, requires a certain amount of time. So he's going to come back, uh, wasn't going to do it then, but come back, and she would be healed. Now let's notice her reaction. Um, verse 11, Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age. Now this could not have been very long after God had appeared to Abraham in, uh, in chapter 17 because he was 99 and she was 90 at that time. And uh, Isaac was born when he was 100. So this was a short time thereafter. There have been long periods before when God said you'll, you'll have be the father of many and so on as we saw yesterday. But this was a shorter period of time. So they were old and well stricken in age. 
And it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. She had gone clear past uh, her menopause, and there was no possibility of her becoming pregnant at that point. There just simply weren't any seeds being let down. Uh, physical impossibility. And he was old and well stricken in age. So there was nothing there either. Neither one of them could perform what was necessary or their bodies could not perform uh, to have a child. God makes a big point of this because he's God. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself. She didn't laugh out loud, roll on the ground like Abraham had a short time before that. It just struck him funny at the time, but she, <laughs> yeah, right, uh, and, and laughed inside. After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? My body's dried up, and he can't, so, you know, chuckle, chuckle. Sure, sure. And the Eternal said to Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Uh, she didn't laugh out loud. She laughed inwardly. And she was behind the tent flap at that. So he couldn't see her face. Uh, he couldn't see her reaction on her face. He didn't hear anything, but he had the capacity to know what had happened inside her mind and the smile that came to her lips. Why did she laugh? Is anything too hard for the eternal? What do you, on a scale of one to ten, think is too hard for God to do? What does it take? You know, we might think he can do this, but he can't do that. Where, where do you reach an unbelief level? What's too hard for God to do? That will vary from person to person. But every one of us, to one degree or another, will have areas where he thinks, well, I don't know about that. Would God do that? Could God do that? Now, this is a saga that had gone on for 50, 60 years or longer in which promises, promises, promises had been made. Never had a time been set on it up till now, but the promises had been made, and this went on and on and on. And you begin to wonder, is that an empty promise? Well, not to them. They actually believed it. He believed it even when he fell on his face, but he thought, well, maybe, maybe there's an explanation. It could be through Ishmael, not through Sarah. So it strained him to some degree. He just could not quite accept that Sarah would yet have a baby. So a few months, and he told him it would be at a set appointed time there in chapter 17 get to 18, and he says, I'm going to come back. There's going to be a specific time when life will begin, and you will hold a babe in your arms. So now it is a very specific time that he will return, and a miracle will occur. So they both had a little trouble with this. Uh, you know, she laughed inwardly. Maybe she had a level of belief, a level of trust in God, but there was just a certain point when she considered the facts. This is the way it is. I, I, you know, by now, since she was 75 up to age 90, everything had ceased. And he was about as worthwhile as a necktie. So, you know, it just stretched the credulity a little bit there. How can this be? What can God do? And Christ recognized the attitude. Is anything too hard for God? You see, these people were still human, even though they were righteous people. They still had their difficulties believing God. 
And I think that's an important part for us to grasp, to realize, and, and to meditate on. Because we have those points where we say, could this really be? You know, I read a lot of scriptures to you, and you've read them yourself in your Bible, showing that the end-time scenario will include every man with his vine and fig tree, partly as we heard in the sermonette there in Zechariah uh, 3, the end of the chapter, during the time when the two witnesses are coming on the scene. The desert will bloom as a rose. And we've read all those promises through there. And there's a level of belief in us, and yet it's hard to grasp that God is going to really do all those things. I know I have to go over those scriptures over and over and over again because it's just hard to grasp it all. And I want to understand it. I want to understand exactly what God is going to do, even though I can imagine certain things. Maybe it won't happen exactly that way. But the Bible spells a lot of it out pretty clearly in so many words. Do we believe God? Now, the Scripture says very clearly there will come a Cyrus at the end time and that what he does is going to cause everybody from the east to the west to know that God is God. Do we really believe that? That God will turn up the hidden riches and the treasures of darkness? It's written in Scripture, and it's not written in code. It just says it in so many words. And the result will be this, that the glory of Lebanon will be shown there in Isaiah 29, and it will cause the deaf to hear and the eyes of the blind to see, and those that murmur, the dissenters, will finally learn true doctrine. That it will open their eyes and ears. And I hope that that is true, because we all have varying levels of belief in what God is going to do. And I read that, i got to believe it. i got to preach it. I can't let those words drop to the ground. I can't let any of God's words drop to the ground. So I've got to tell you about it. Now, whether you believe it or not, I don't know. But things are going to happen, and you'll either believe it, and you'll have your mind changed, or you'll go your way. Because God says that's what's going to happen, very clearly. We need to cogitate on this question. Is anything too hard for the eternal? At the time appointed, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah got real defensive and denied, saying, I laugh not, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Now, there's not a great deal of condemnation there, I don't think. He just didn't allow the lie to stand. He corrected her. And he did what he had said anyway. She did have a son, Isaac, a little later. So even though she had some doubt, even though she had trouble believing and thought that might be a little too hard for God, God had mercy and said, all right, I want you to know you lied. I'm not going to let you slip out of that, but you're going to have the child anyway. And the men rose up from there and looked toward Sodom. Now, they stopped by on a side trip uh, where a Abraham was on the plain of Mamre, but they were actually on their way to do a job in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. He, you know, they decided to leave, and he actually walked out the door and down the road with them a little bit or across the desert, whatever was there, to see them on their way. There's a truly hospitable man. He just didn't say it, stand in the shade and say, bye. But he went on out there and, and walked him on out of ways. He was very uh, hospitable, very accommodating, very helpful. And are we told in the New Testament that we are to serve and to give and to help others and to do everything we can and to be hospitable? 
Yeah, we have to, we have to do these things. Well, here, the father of the faithful had that mind, a ready mind. It's called in the New Testament, I forget now exactly where, a ready mind. Not ready to turn away, but ready to help, ready to serve, ready to give. We have to develop that. It doesn't come natural for the most part. So, they went toward Sodom, and he went along with them for a ways. Verse 17, And the Eternal said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? I guess he was talking to the two angels, just as they were departing from Abraham, and says, Should I hide this from Abraham? I mean, it's my business. I am going to go take care of a problem in Sodom and Gomorrah. Should I tell Abraham? Good question. Do we ever, once in a while, question, I wonder if I ought to say that. I wonder if I ought to do that. I wonder if people are ready for that. I wonder if that's what they need to hear. Or would it be better if they heard something different? So he reasoned this out. And he said, verse 18, Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Here's his question. Should I tell him? For I know him. There was a point to all of this story that had spanned the decades of these two people's lives. It had taken almost all of their real adult life, their entire married life, for God to come to the point he could say, I know him. Should I tell him what's about to happen, I know him. Wouldn't it be nice if we had developed such a relationship with God that he would question, should I tell so-and-so what I am going to do? and even positively consider that. Now, I see around us a lot of people who think they have that kind of relationship and think that God is telling them things, and so often it turns out it came from a different source or their own vanity, ego, and imagination. And things didn't happen that way at all. But wouldn't it be nice to literally, actually, be so close to God and Him know you well enough that He could trust you with certain information? We read about that a little bit last night, didn't we? Let's turn over to John for a moment. Uh, 15. John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. We should be coming to the point. We lay our lives down, as Romans 12 says, as a living sacrifice. We don't necessarily have to die physically for each other, but we should daily be living our lives as a daily sacrifice for others laying down our time, our energy, our wealth, whatever it might be, to help others. That should be our goal in life. That's what he says right here. This is a very serious talk he's having with, with these disciples, and he's telling them the nitty-gritty of what really was going on and would. This is very important scripture here. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Now, he is going to offer them friendship here, just as he became a friend with Abraham. Any of us can become friends of God. Now, notice how he defines this and, and the contingents he lays down on it. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. What do we hold back? Which commandments do we not want to keep? Some people have trouble with the Sabbath. Some people have trouble with tithing. Some people have trouble with uh, 
the feasts. Now, what, what is it? Where is your sticking point? Which one of God's commandments do you not like? Is it one about not coveting? Are we envious and jealous? Do we want that which others might have that is not legal for us? Just pick one out. Do we lie? Do we like to cover for ourselves by lying about the real truth like Sarah tried to do? Or as Abraham did with Pharaoh and with Abimelech? Which one of God's commandments is it? Adultery? Is that a hard one? Well, I'll keep them all, but you know, I need a little of that. Just which one is it? The whole of religion, basically, hates the Sabbath. They don't really, you know, they say the commandments are done away. Why? Because they don't like the fourth one. They understand you shouldn't kill and lie and commit adultery and those things. I mean, even society has rules on those things. Now, people do them all the time, but I, but I mean, from a philosophical standpoint, they don't have a problem with those. They don't even have a problem with the idea, at least, that you ought to put God above everything else. They don't do it, but they don't have a problem philosophically with it. But they'll do away with the whole Ten Commandments just because of the fourth one, keeping the Sabbath. That's a sticking point. It's a sign between God and his people, and it's one that they don't want to keep. Really above all the others. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. We are not able to hold anything back. We're supposed to go down that list of his commandments, statutes, and ordinances and agree with every one of them and try our level best to keep each and every one of them despite whatever human weaknesses and problems we have. These days, picture coming into line with God's laws and putting worldly, carnal, natural thoughts and actions out of our lives. That's what these seven days picture. Here's an opportunity. We're supposed to do it every day, but here we have every year a specific reminder of that. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knows not what his Lord does, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known to you. All right, that puts us, potentially at least, in the same category as Abraham, doesn't it? Read back there where God said, I know him, I know his family, I know what's going on, and I'm going to include him and let him know what I'm doing. And he'll do the same with us. He says right there to the early New Testament church, those who would be leaders of it, if we would follow his ways and do what he says, he would tell us what's going on. There are a lot of people who read the Bible and still don't know what's going on. You are a people that I believe are working hard at changing, growing, overcoming, and I believe that God is beginning to reveal to us what's going on, don't you? We can see a lot of things that a lot of people, even in the church of God, don't see. That's not because we're great. I think it's because you are becoming a yielded, humble, meek people who have a willingness to learn, a willingness to listen, a willingness to be taught, and are working hard at getting rid of the pride, the ego, the vanity, the self-centeredness that says, my thinking and my way is the only way. God says he will reserve to himself a meek and humble people, a teachable people with open minds. I hope we're beginning to qualify for that. Doesn't, isn't it nice to know ahead of time what's about to happen? Maybe we don't know the exact timing. 
but then God has reserved some things to himself. But if we know the events, we can prepare, can't we? There are a lot of people that just don't know. The guy that said the tribulation is going to start this week. He just simply is missing a huge section of knowledge. He doesn't understand that not a village, but villages have to be built as towns without walls. He just doesn't understand that there has to be a ladder church, a ladder temple built. He doesn't understand the time that that will take. He doesn't understand that Jerusalem and its walls, its breaches, have to be built physically. And that from the order to build those walls, it will be 69 and a half literal weeks until the abomination is set up and it is defiled and we have to flee to a place of safety and the tribulation can begin. So we're looking here at several years of events that are clearly in the Bible that have to occur before the tribulation can even begin to start. Those events have not yet occurred. So that should give us a heads up, shouldn't it? When somebody predicts the tribulation is going to start these days of unleavened bread or it's going to start at trumpets or whatever day they pick out, we know that there have to be a certain amount of events that occur between now and the time the tribulation can start. And we have a rough idea, at least, of how long those events will take and even specifically on some of them. Christ cannot come back in 2012. I don't care if the Aztec calendar ends and Planet X hits right smack in the middle of the earth. Christ cannot come that soon. Because the villages have to be built. That will take time. And it says there in Daniel that when this country is divided into four parts, and that hasn't even happened yet, that those four who take over those four sections will come against, or one of them, Little Horn, will come against God's people and set up the abomination of desolation in the latter years of their reign. It is going to be a period of time from the time this country is divided until the abomination of desolation set up by the Little Horn comes against the church in Jerusalem. So, there are years of events before the tribulation can come. How do we know that? God's begun to open and show us things in the Bible that a lot of people simply don't see. Are we friends of God? I hope we're on our way toward that. I hope when he says, should I inspire these people and let them know I hope he says, yeah, I think I'll go ahead and tell him. He said he's not going to do anything except he lets his, the prophets know so they can tell the people. Well, he told the prophets, they wrote it here. Now all we've got to do is read what the prophets say and believe it. And do accordingly. Follow the instruction of the prophets. And we will become friends of God. This isn't just about Abraham, in other words. This is about those children, his seed, who would live at the end time, who are the children of Abraham, and should have the same spirit, the same attitude, the same approach, the same way of living that Abraham had. And if we do that, we will be counted as friends of God, because Abraham was. So he said, he considered, so I've already made up my mind, Abraham is going to be the father of many nations, and that all nations of the earth shall be blessed in him or through his seed. This nation has blessed the whole earth. No other nation has done it to any extent like we have. We have given foreign aid, we have helped, we have delivered over the years like no other. Now, we've also abused power, and that's a different story. <laughs> and we have become a cursed people 
because of our disobedience. So in us, the nations have been blessed, and now in us, the nations will be cursed, unfortunately. But God has made it possible for a few to escape. Let's go on with the story. Verse 19, for I know him. Now, he didn't know him as well even here when he was 99 years old as he was going to get to know him because Abraham's trials, troubles, tribulations, and tests weren't over with. We'll see that later on. And then God will say, I know that I know Abraham. At this point he says, I know him. But he's going to get to know him even better. I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the eternal, to do justice and judgment. Now we are Abraham's seed. And God knew Abraham, and he knew the genes that were there. He knew the thought processes of Abraham. And he said, the seed of Abraham, down the line, will keep the way of the eternal. Question. Are most of Abraham's seed obeying God at this point? Very, very few. Who are the candidates for this prophecy to be talking about? Only those called out ones at the end. Just a few tens of thousands are the only ones that are paying any attention. So these, this prophecy has to be fulfilled in us. This is a very live prophecy for you and me. This isn't just old Genesis stuff. It's now. We'll see that as we go on. Now, ultimately, all Israel will be saved, as it says in Romans 11. But that's millennial. Right now, it's not very many of Abraham's seed who are willing to obey God. Let's say it this way. God doesn't have many friends on this earth. Not very many at all. Most who are on this earth are the enemies of God. They have the spirit of Antichrist. And when the one who holds the greatest spirit of Antichrist shows up, they'll fit right in with him. Won't be a difficult transition, whatever. Because they're already against God. If God were to sit down, you know, somebody might ask you, sit down and count your friends. Can you count good friends on one hand or ten, ten, ten fingers? I've heard it said that if you have five real friends in the course of a lifetime, you're a very unusual individual. True friends. If you have ten, man, you're really in high cotton. I mean a friend that will stick with you through thick and thin, sick and sin, and everything else that you go through. I can look back in my life and see a few people that I've been really, truly close to that I felt... I, I counted it up one day with men, with women, and I could. it was so hard to come up with five men that I could really count like they were a brother or more than a brother like Jonathan and David were, you know. You can have acquaintances, you can have friends, but how many that you felt that kind of closeness to that you wanted them to have your back in the alley or wherever and that you felt anything you needed, they would be there, they would take care of it. It was precious few. Precious few. How many true friends does God have on the earth? Not very many. Even many who profess to love God don't keep the things that he says. They'll drop parts of his word to the ground that they don't like. They'll keep the parts they do like. That's not a true friend. We're here to live by every word of God, by his own mouth. They shall keep the way of the eternal to do justice and judgment, that the eternal may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. 
And the Eternal said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grievous, he, he heard the babble of confusion and sin and the wrong kind of language and thoughts and words coming out of Sodom and Gomorrah, just as he can look at the world today and see six and a half billion people who are going every direction there is other than toward God, with very, very few that are headed the right way. Your sin is very grievous. I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come to me, and if not, I will know. I heard the report, I'm going to go down and see for myself, and then I'll know for sure if it's as bad as I'm being told it is. And the men turned their faces from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Eternal. <coughs> so he decided to let Abraham in on this story. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now you've told me you're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> you're going to kill everybody, including the righteous? Peradventure, or mayhaps, or what if there be fifty righteous within the city? Will you also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? I think Abraham's going to show that he was a little by, a bit naive about how deep sin goes and how many righteous people there are on earth after all. He thought there might be as many as 50 in Sodom and Gomorrah that were righteous. So he offered that. To be far from you to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? How could you destroy 50 righteous men? He's reasoning. You know, I think I would be afraid to reason this much with God. Uh, but Abraham had come to know him pretty well by face-to-face -face encounters and visions and so on. And, and he was questioning. Wouldn't it be nice to know that you weren't being presumptuous and vain and out of line to question God on something, wouldn't it be nice to know that your relationship with him was good enough that you could actually have this kind of talk back and forth? Not that we ought to question God, I don't mean that. But who can question God? But yet Abraham felt brave enough, based on their relationship, that he could at least ask the questions and say, you know, would you do this or would you do that? He probably said it in a, in a humble way, but he still felt he could do it. Verse 26, and the Eternal said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak to the Eternal, which am but dust and ashes. So he He's thinking about this now. Should I push this further? I've already opened my mouth, and I'm just dust and ashes, and he's God. So at least he had the right understanding here of what the relationship was. There was a certain meekness and humility there. Uh, verse 28, Peradventure there shall be the shellac five of the fifty righteous, which you destroy all the city for the sake of five. And he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, what if there's 40 there? And he said, I will not do it for 40's sake. God knew how many righteous people there were in Sodom. It wasn't too hard to answer this, but Abraham was the one that didn't understand what was really going on. So God was patient with this. And he said to him, oh, let not the Lord be angry. He, he realized now, I think I'm beginning to push this a little bit. Don't, don't be angry, but... Don't be angry, and I will speak. What if there shall be 30 found there? And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. God is merciful, and God is willing to show mercy, and his mercy endures forever, but there is a judgment coming, and there will be some who do not come up to scratch at that judgment. But he was willing to negotiate this, 
Now, the fifth time. And he said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak to the Eternal. Uh, I better check and see how many gold stars I have left. Peradventure there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I won't destroy it for even twenty. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. He had to think, you know, I, I think I really am pushing this, but what if there are that many? I think it shows that Abraham had a concern for people. He certainly showed that by his serving, giving, hospitable attitude. And he wanted to be sure anybody that was righteous was saved. So I think his attitude in that is one of the reasons that God was willing to be patient with him. Because he could see that Abraham was truly concerned for any that might be righteous. Abraham didn't say, well, yeah, I realize they're pretty bad over there and there's not very many good ones. Why don't you just wipe them out? Uh, I don't think God would have liked that attitude in Abraham, but that's not the attitude he had. Oh, not, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak just one more time. Peradventure ten shall be found there. Six times. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the eternal went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So Christ went on, Abraham back home, and the two angels that were with Christ went on to Sodom and Gomorrah because they were the ones appointed to destroy the city. Now why did he take this much time to explain that? I think partly to show Abraham's attitude and concern for any that might be righteous. I think it's part to show by example that God's mercy does indeed endure forever and that he is willing to bend over backward once he's decided even to do something like destroy that city, bend over backward if he can find a few who are willing to obey him. Doesn't he say, that for the elect's sake, time will be cut short, otherwise no flesh would be saved alive. Now we are a part of the people that have been called out of the world here at the end time that could be placed in the category of the elect. We certainly are in candidacy for that. Whether we all are judged that way remains to be seen. But having been called out of this world, the called out once, God has put us in that category of the ones who could be the ones that save mankind. For the elect's sake, it will be cut short, or nobody would live. If Elijah doesn't come and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children of the fathers, God will smite the earth with the ultimate curse. Total obliteration. So there's two examples, very clear in Scripture, that show that what we do and how we live is a very, very, very important part of the judgment of God. And I believe that's why this story was included here. This is a very important story for you and me. I don't think I ever attached that much to it before, but we're going to see that this is very much for the end-time church in the words of some of the apostles very shortly here. And that therefore, this is a very important story for you and me. All right, and there came two angels to Sodom in the evening, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. He recognized that they were important. I don't know whether they recognized they were angels for sure or not, but he knew they were important personages. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, wash your feet, rise up early, and go on your way, now, that's humility in itself. I know you're not coming here to see me. I'm not that important. You obviously have important business, and you have to get on with it. But come stay with me tonight, and I'll take care of you and be hospitable to you. 
And they said, no, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly. And they turned into him and entered into his house. And he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread and they did eat. Why did he bake unleavened bread? Was it only because they were already there and he didn't have time for it to rise? It was even time. Wouldn't his wife have already laid the bread out earlier to rise for the evening meal? If it were a normal day, I would think so. But he gave them unleavened bread. I think that that probably places this story in the days of unleavened bread. Think about that for a moment. Didn't God destroy the entire Egyptian empire during the days of unleavened bread? Yes, he did. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, probably, during the days of unleavened bread. When you're supposed to be getting sin out and get out of sin, Egypt pictured sin. And they were told to eat the Passover with their shoes on their feet and their staff in their hand and to be in fear and be ready to get out just as soon as they possibly legally could. And he told Lot in this story to get out as quick as you can. I'm going to destroy this. He told the people when they went across the Jordan into the promised land and circled Jericho that they would, he would destroy the city miraculously during the days of unleavened bread. He has told us that there will come a time when it's time to get out and get out now. Don't even go back in your house. Don't pick up anything. Or just go. Because destruction is coming. Will it be at the time of the Passover and unleavened bread? Wouldn't surprise me any. That's a pattern God has set up at a time which pictures coming out of sin. I'll go into that a bit more here in a little while. I guess I will. No, I won't. Probably. Maybe tomorrow night. All right, let's go uh, on down. Unleavened bread made it eat. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. Two strangers in town that came from all over the city to be where those two strangers were. And they called a lot and said to him, Where are the men which came into you this night? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, we're all aware that Sodom and Gomorrah were basically homosexual towns. That's where the word sodomy or uh, homosexuality, I won't go into the details of it, came from. The act of sodomy. That's what they were. Now God makes it very clear in Romans 1 that when men go after men, that it is a, one of the worst perversions that can possibly be perpetrated on this earth. And it said even the women have done the same thing there in Romans 1. God made the marriage relationship between man and woman to be a very wonderful thing, to be representative of God-plain relationships, to be something that's sacred and holy and beautiful and right and good. One of the best things that he ever created, used properly. But when men pervert it in women and make it a dirty, filthy, rotten, wretched, perverted thing, it is one of the worst things there is on earth. They can turn that which is best into the worst. And God didn't like it. He's not really in love with San Francisco. He has not many friends there. And I don't mean to single that city out particularly, but it's one known for that. But there are some that are just about as bad. Lot went out the door to them, 
and shut the door after him. And he said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Don't even think. Don't do what you're thinking of doing. Behold now, I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out to you, and do you to them as is good in your eyes. Only to these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. That one is difficult. I understand his sense of hospitality. I understand him wanting to protect the men from the sodomites who were outside, but to offer his two virginal daughters to them to do with as they wished? I mean, multiple rape by hundreds or thousands of men? That one, I, it's just beyond me. I, I don't understand what he was thinking. That one, I guess it requires some thought. I don't know. It just, it's beyond me. I mean, yeah, give your life defending the two men, but don't throw your daughters out in the street. I, Lot is listed in one place as a righteous man, basically. But I think here was a very, very difficult flaw in his thinking. It can't be right to go that far. Give his own life, maybe, but not throw his daughters out. And they said, stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came in to sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. Now will we deal worse with you than with them? So they said, you didn't grow up here, Lot. You just came here. And we'll do worse with you than we would with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut to the door. So the angels actually drugged Lot in and protected him from the guys out there. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. You talk about depraved. They were so bad and so full of lust and carnal appetite in a perverted way, that even though they had been struck blind, couldn't see, they were still groping for the door. How sick can you get? I, this, is, this story almost, it's beyond my imagination. You'd think if you'd been struck blind, you'd say, wait a minute, what's wrong here? I, I can't see. I, I think I'll go away and do something different. No, they still tried to find the door. And the men said to Lot, Have you there any besides? Son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whatsoever you have in this city, bring them out of this place. For we will destroy this place. This is the, the angel saying this. Because the cry of them is waxed great before the face of the Eternal, and the Eternal has sent us to destroy it. So they revealed why they were there. And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Eternal will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked to his sons-in-law. What's wrong with this crazy old fool that he wants us to get out of here, and God's going to destroy this place? Come on. Wouldn't that be the reaction of most Americans today? What do you mean God's going to destroy this great and wonderful nation? God bless America. <laughs> Look at the moral cesspool we've created and the lying, sleazy, cheating business world. And the crooked, wretched, on-the-take politicians and everything slimy and sleazy about this country, and people still think it's a God-fearing Christian nation. God wouldn't destroy this nation. God bless America. Oh. You see, you get to the point where you've lived in sin long enough, 
and around it long enough to where it doesn't seem that bad. There's nothing wrong with us. We're okay. We're sure better than some of those people overseas or whatever. How perverted our judgment becomes. This crazy old fool thinks this city's wrong. Here are these guys outside the door, wandering around, struck blind, still trying to get in the house to get these two men that are visitors in town. And his sons-in-law are so used to the way Sodom was that they thought nothing of it. They thought Lot was the crazy one. You know, they can actually shut churches down if they're incorporated for castigating sodomites, queers, homosexuals, gay, whatever you want to call them. You can't say those words in an incorporated church or they can shut your doors. That's how bad it is. God makes it very plain how he feels about it. You and I aren't that depraved, are we? We, we? we wouldn't think that it was a bad thing to say God wants to destroy a city because of sodomy. What, again, is our level of understanding of what is permissible and what is not? Of what is clean and unclean? Of what is good for us to see, hear, and do? I mean, this seems terrible to us. But where is our level of comfort with this society? Now, what did God do? He said, I have called you out of the world. You're not part of the world anymore. I've called you out of it. My called out once. When you call someone out of something, do you expect them to stay in the middle of it? No. You said... That's what you're in. Come out of it, my people. Let's read on. And when the morning rose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters, which are here. He didn't even mention the sons-in-law. <laughs> they were too far gone, obviously lest you be consumed in the iniquity of the city. Get out, lest you be consumed with the city. Where do we read that? Revelation 18.4 was brought up in the sermonette, or I guess it was in the sermon this morning. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and her plagues. Have we really applied Sodom and Gomorrah to ourselves as individuals, I wonder? Have we read this story and said, that's me. That's me. Get out of this sin-sick place, lest you be killed with them. Now notice verse 16. And while he lingered, while he lingered, he had seen the depravity. He had seen these men try to take the two angels. He had seen them struck blind, and still they didn't give up. He had a level of comprehension, didn't he, of how bad things were? I believe he did. People in God's church have a level of understanding of how sick this world is. We understand that a lot of what's going on in our society is bad. We understand that God is going to destroy it, don't we? Don't we? Don't we see all that? And we see uh, prostitution rings in Washington. We see homosexual parades in New York and in San Francisco and Los Angeles and wherever. 
We see the lying, the cheating, the stealing in business, don't we? We see those things. And we hate it, don't we? We don't like it. We know it's bad. We know it's wrong. And yet we linger. We are not willing, as a church, an overall church, and even we who understand have trouble turning loose of this world and the things in it. Lot had seen things as bad as they can get, and yet he lingered. What is it that is so fascinating about this world and the way it is that is so hard for us to turn loose of? We grew up in it. It was the American way, and it degenerated, and we can see it's degenerate. But still in all, it's part of us. It's in our blood. It's in our minds. It's in our history. It's in our experiences. And it's hard for us to come out of it. God has given some an opportunity to move out of the cities, to get away from the core of this Babylonian system and the sin and the wretchedness that is in it. And some are seeing fit to do so. But some linger. They know things are bad, but I don't want to go until I have to. I, I want to kind of linger there because I kind of still like certain aspects of it, and I just don't want to turn it loose and get away from it. What is it that makes us so fascinated with what has been America that we won't turn loose? I'm going to leave you with that thought till tomorrow night.